Well, I don't know. This seems like an impertinent question now. I don't know if you've ever had an almighty strop. (laughs) Who knows what's going to happen when you prepare your talks, honestly. Perhaps there's been a time in your life when you so desperately wanted something and you couldn't have it. And so you just kind of imploded. When I was a little lad, I lived on a cul-de-sac called Edgeworth Road, for what it's worth. And the street where we lived when we were very little, me and my younger brother, was full of families who'd moved away from Liverpool to the areas around Liverpool, which probably accounts for my ever-so-slight hint of a Scouse accent. Sometimes when I preach at other churches, people say to me, is your mother Irish or is your father from Liverpool or so there's something there as a twang in my accent up until the age of five or six most of my friends that I played out with in the street were scousers so my my mum tells me that when I was a kid I would often say things like where's my shirt and I don't talk like that now but I think that twang is still ever so slightly there I did love that place because there were fields that seemed to go on forever that you could build dens on you could ride your bike on. And these were the days in the 70s when you could pretty much play outside all day and your parents wouldn't worry. And you came back dirty and tired, and, but your parents didn't really need to worry. One day, we were playing football on my old primary school field. It's still there now. The, the football field actually backed on in the corner to our own back garden. And I was only very small, but I really wanted to play football with the big boys. And um, it's a sunny day, 1975, the teams are being picked. And I knew, deep down, that I was really probably too small to be involved in this game. But I was there, straining, straining to be picked. It was a serious game, proper 11 aside. And when it came down to it, there was no place for me. And one of the boys said, Hey, sorry lad. That's my Scouse accent. You'll have to sit this one out, mate. And I thought my insides would fall out. I so wanted to play. And with tears beginning to form in my little eyes, all I could think of was but my mum has washed me shirt, especially. <laughs> and even while I was saying that, I knew that isn't going to cut it at all. <laughs> my mum's washed me shirt. Please let me play. Thankfully, those older boys let that go. Because <laughs> I think that could have followed me around for the rest of my life, that couldn't it? My mum's washed my shirt. Oh, the shame of scraping the barrel for a reason. And the pathetic desperation of so wanted to join in with these big boys and play football. And the sight of a crestfallen little boy sitting in the corner of that field on Thomas Street, howling like a wounded dog. An almighty strop, all because I couldn't play football with the big boys. As I've grown older, I've I've quickly realised, thankfully, that howling like a wounded dog is not generally accepted 
in society as, as, a, as a normal behaviour. And uh, so my straps, as I've got older, have become a little bit more subtle and sophisticated. And obviously the things I strop about now are much, much more important than just playing football with the big boys. Uh, at least I think they are. Um, sometimes maybe I'm not sure when I look back. Well, listen, we're, we're continuing our studies in the book of Jonah here. We entitled our series, Chased by Grace. And one of the reasons for that is that in this story, it is really a dramatization of the Christ, Christian gospel. Um, it, it is the Christian gospel as a sort of real-life play. This, the, in, in this book, I think we see a little bit of what human beings are like, and a little bit of what God is like. We've done two sessions so far. We're only going to do four. We had a little break last week. But in our first session and the second session, we were thinking about Jonah as the runaway prophet who God chases. And we were talking about the fact that that's the essence of the gospel, really. We run and God chases. That, that's what grace is. The essence of sin is running. The essence of grace is God chasing us and catching us, and making us his own. We're going to rush over chapter 3 a little bit today, because while the Ninevites are important, we've only got four sessions, and really, this is Jonah's story. So I want to get into chapter 4 today, and we're going to try and think about another pair, and uh, so here, here's what we're going to do in 3 and 4. We're going to think about Jonah, not so much as the runaway prophet, but this time as the sulking prophet, and then next time we're going to think about the God who keeps chasing. Jonah here in chapter 4 has what we might call the mother of all straps. And I, and I think it's appropriate for us to, to break the book up in that way. He's the runaway prophet and he is now the sulking prophet. The, the New International Version that we read actually draws attention to this with uh, two uh, little but words. If you look at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, God's word came to Jonah, go to the city and never preach against it. Verse 3, but Jonah ran away. He's the runaway prophet there. When we get to chapter 4, God has saved the Ninevites in chapter 3. Chapter 4 verse 1 begins, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. That may as well say, but Jonah sulked. So in chapter 1 he's running away, God chases him. Chapter 4, he's sulking, and God is still chasing him. So I think that's a good way for us to break this book up. That, that's the whole book in a nutshell, really. And, in, and amazingly, in both cases, in his running and in his sulking, God is after him. God never gives up on this intriguing man, Jonah. And I think the whole story, it's only a short book, the whole story emphasizes, doesn't it, God's rugged, persistent, and unconditional love for his people. So we're going to consider Jonah as the sulking prophet today. So there's a joyful title, the sulking prophet. We're going to think today all about sulking. So if you're in a sulking mood... You'll be well on the way uh, today. 
first of all, let's just set up the shot of chapter 4 by seeing that chapter 3 is an amazingly successful chapter. In the first part of the story, Jonah runs away, God chases him, shakes his box, as we saw last week, and he brings him back. Chapter 3 then begins, as Andrew read to us, with God's word coming to him a second time, and repeating his original command to send Jonah to the great city of Nineveh to preach there. This is what we might call a new start, a second chance. And Jonah, this time, rather than running away, obeys God immediately, and he goes to Nineveh. He preaches there, and the whole city responds to his preaching. The whole city responds to his preaching and God well from the king all the people the whole city they repent and God relents from sending the judgment that he threatened to send on this city the city is saved God has had compassion on this great city Jonah one man hits the jackpot, doesn't he? Was there ever a preacher in the whole of history who had such a spectacular response? Was there? I can't think of one. I've been thinking about this. I don't think there's ever been a preacher. One man, no team. They didn't even know the Bible. These are pagan people. They They know nothing. One man goes into this wicked city and the whole city repents. He must have been absolutely over the moon. If he was a diplomat, they'd have been giving him the Nobel Peace Prize. If he was a musician, he would be playing Wembley Stadium, wouldn't he? If he was a footballer, he would be winning the World Cup final. He's none of those things, he's a prophet. But surely as a preacher, this is the pinnacle of his career. He's travelled to a foreign country, an enemy nation... And made an unbelievable difference. He isn't bothered about cultural engagement. I'll just spend a few years just getting to know the people. He just goes right in there and smacks them between the eyes. And the whole city responds to his message. I think this is on a par with a British preacher going to the middle of Berlin during the Second World War and calling the city to repent. And the city going, yeah, we get that. Let's repent. And a British preacher turning an enemy city upside down in that way. It is amazing. More than that, isn't this what we Christians pray for? Here is a city full of the problems that cities have. Violence, brutality, injustice, inequality politicians and social workers go into places like Nineveh and spend their whole lives scratching their heads. How can we fix these problems that never seem to go away? It seems like the further cities move from God's values, the more they seem to spin out of control and bits start flying off in all directions. Jonah, one man sent by God, goes in He preaches and the whole city is put back together. This broken, violent city 
is restored to peace, shalom, stability. Verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. In modern jargon, we would say result, wouldn't we? Result. Is that not how it's meant to happen? There should be a verse 11 to chapter 3 that says something along the lines of, and they all lived happily ever after. And then the book should end. Wouldn't that be great? Jonah failed, he ran away, he came back, he went to Nineveh, they all repented, and it was all fantastic. That's the end of the story. Thank you. But there's a chapter 4. And here's another shock, to top all the other shocks we've already seen. Jonah is absolutely disgusted. He is gutted. He is angry and disappointed. This to him is the greatest injustice he's ever seen in his life. If he got the Nobel Prize, he would spit on it and throw it back in your face. Don't want it. Don't want anything to do with it. And in chapter 4, Jonah begins to disintegrate and fall apart. He was the runaway prophet who God chased. Now, he's the sulking prophet who God is still chasing. So, I want to just explore with you Jonah's sulking. So, okay, I don't want to be miserable. Sulking is a bit miserable, but we all do it. So, prepare yourselves. His sulking causes him, first of all, to obey God through gritted teeth. Do you know what that feels like? Doing the right thing, but with the wrong motive. Do you know, for Jonah, even his obedience is really disobedience. Even when he's doing what God's asking him to do, he's seething inside. We can see now that he only went to Nineveh because he knew it was futile to run away. God had caught him once. He tries to sail away on a ship. God shakes the ship. He gets thrown overboard. God brings a... I mean, he thinks, if I run away, I mean, what's going to happen next if he runs away? I can't run away. I might as well go. He goes because he has to. But you can tell his heart still isn't in it. You can kind of tell that his heart isn't in it by the way he preaches. When he goes to Nineveh, in verse 4, on the first day, Jonah started into city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be all returned. In, in the Hebrew, that's six words. His sermon was six words. He, he might as well have walked around with a sandwich board on saying, you're all doomed. And inside, he's wishing they were. You're 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And I secretly hope they will be. That's, that's how he's going into the city, isn't it? Oh God, I can't actually wait for the fire and brimstone to fall on these dirty pagans. Please rain it down. That, that's what's going on in his heart. He doesn't even tell them what to do. He doesn't even tell them to repent. He just says, you're all doomed. They repent. Even, even the king says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion. Jonah didn't tell him that, presumably. And look at what he cries in chapter 4. 
Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Torchich. I knew it. I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were going to forgive them. And that's why I didn't want to go. Even after he's preached, verse 5, chapter 4, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Even then, he's still thinking, maybe the fire and brimstone's just been delayed. But I still come. I'll just sit here with my binoculars and watch. And he never did. What makes it worse, I think, for Jonah is that he knows what God is like. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. That is almost a quote from Exodus. He knew his Bible. He knew what God was like. He knew that God was kind. He knew it in his head. He was just completely unable to celebrate it. He knows God is a God of love and compassion, but he can't stand it when that love is given to people who he thinks don't deserve it. Does he remind you of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told? You know, the father throws a great party. The younger boy comes home and the older one is like, I've slaved for you all my life. You never threw a party for me. He was working for his dad, but all the while bitter, brooding, angry. He was outwardly doing his duty, but inside eaten up with bitterness, sulking, obeying God through gritted teeth. Secondly, Jonah's sulking, I think, shows what a great, great, impressive talent we humans have for justifying being miserable. When we're miserable, isn't it odd that we're always convinced we're right? When we sulk, when I sulk, I'm always right. Oh, man, we find all kinds of reasons, don't we, to wallow in self-pity and misery. We sulk, and somehow it sort of makes us feel better. I have every right to sulk. This is absolutely scandalous what's happened here. And everyone we meet gets the whole sorry story, don't they? And the subtext is always, I am right, aren't I? This is disgraceful. Anybody in my position would sulk like this problem isn't me, it's them. And you never know who they are, do you? Who's, who's they? Is it the government? Or some mysterious group over here called they? I, I often find this way in a working situation, you know, people often say, you'll never guess what they've done now. And who are they? Do, do you mean the guy who's your line manager? You'll never guess what they've done now. It's like, I have to, sometimes you can overhear, you know, I run a business, sometimes I overhear my own staff saying that, you'll never guess what they've done now. And I'm, Hang on a minute, that's me. They were talking about there. I'm the they in that sentence. Why aren't you necking? It's always the mysterious they who are in the wrong. The problem for Jonah in this case 
The problem isn't some mysterious they. It's God. When Jonah says, you'll never guess what they've done now, he means God. You'll never guess what God's gone and done now. In this case, I think we have to understand the background. My analogy from World War II is not too far away. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians were brutal. The whole empire was built on intimidation. Ruthless military campaigns. You can read it in history. They have no respect for the true God of Israel. They have no respect for the nations around them. They were the world's superpower at this time. And they weren't very nice. Jonah loves his country. These are God's special people. Their history is special. Their land is special. And they know better than these pagan bullies. Now, I I don't think there's anything wrong with loving your country. But when it turns into actually wanting God to nuke your enemies, it's probably turned into something more than just mild patriotism. God, I wish you would drop an atom bomb on them. Jonah is sulking here because it looks like God has just let the Ninevites off. And the original language here in verse 1 is very emphatic. Jonah was greatly displeased. And he became angry. I I didn't make a note of this, but somehow in in that verse, it's kind of, this this was a great evil that was very great. the, The Hebrew is very doubly emphatic. Jonah was disgusted with God. I can't stand you. I don't like what you've done. I don't like what you're doing. I don't want to be in the same room as you. He's wallowing and he's convinced that he's right. Thirdly, um, his sulking really makes him completely unstable. And um, yeah, the more we look at Jonah, I think, the, well, the more it makes me cringe as I see a mirror here. The sulking always makes us unstable. It's interesting, isn't it? Instability is a, is a, it's a human trait. We're, we often say, don't we? Oh, we're up and down like a yo-yo. That, that, that's how we are isn't it our emotions can be so variable this story began with Jonah being tossed around by the sea didn't it which is a picture of his life in a way up and down might as well be tossed around on the sea we can see him being unstable in two ways first of all spiritually in this book we hear Jonah praying twice the first time From inside the belly of a fish, chapter 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And he praises God for an amazing deliverance. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. That whole prayer ends with a joyful celebration, thanksgiving, verse 9. But I, 
Jonah, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Yeah. We've been singing today. It's wonderful to sing God's praises in church. Jonah is that guy. Isn't it the case in life often? One minute we feel like God is so close. Our faith is so strong. We feel invincible and secure. Full of energy and hope. And then ten minutes later, we wonder whether we've ever had a Christian thought at all. And begin to doubt our very salvation. Up and down. Jonah is desperate for God to save him. But he can't stand it when God saves other people who he thinks don't deserve it. And his sulking makes him spiritually unstable. Secondly, we can see him being unstable emotionally. In this whole book, it's a very tight narrative. And there's a lot of language that kind of emphasizes the power of the story. There's a lot of times the word great is used. Great wind, great storm, great fish. But when you get to chapter 4, it's all about the emotion. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. A few verses later, he goes out, as we've seen, he sits down and he waits to see whether God's going to nuke them after all. Hoping that God will. He makes a shade. I mean, what's there going to be to make a shade with? Any, any little raw materials have been collected for people to burn. So he's got a little bit of a makeshift shade. The sun's beating down. And God causes a vine to grow up to give him some relief. And Jonah is not just happy. The end of verse 6. Jonah was very happy. Oh man, this is great. He's deliriously happy. But the vine dies the very next day. He is as angry the next day as he was happy the day before. The vine dies. The sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. One day he's very happy. The next day he's very miserable. His emotions are like a roller coaster. We might say he doesn't know whether he's coming or going. His world is falling apart. Can we relate to this? One minute he's happy, next minute he's furious. He's irritable, he's confused, he's disorientated, he's frustrated and angry. One minute he's full of joy, next minute he's in the depths of despair. And the emphasis here in the chapter is, is more on the pettiness of it all as well, isn't it? That, this is the bit that makes me cringe, as I say myself here. He cares about a poxy little plant more than a city of 120,000 people. And it's, it's like, Jonah, the wrong things make you happy and the wrong things make you sad. When Jonah says to God, God, do you know what? I really don't get your love. I don't understand how it works. God effectively replies to him in his chapter by saying, Jonah, do you know something? I really don't get your love. I don't understand how your love works. You love the poxiest little things. Do I not have the right to have compassion on a city 
God's effectively saying to Jonah, do you want to rethink that? Sometimes when our kids have straps, can I say that? It's so unfair. Sometimes myself or Jane will say to them, do you want to rewind and just rethink that? Jane has a great way of saying, I'll show you what's fair. (laughs) I'll show you what's fair. Do you want to rewind and just rethink that statement? Do you have a right to be angry? That's what God does here. Jonah, you don't understand me. You are up and down like a yo-yo. Your love is so preoccupied with the wrong things. When I've got this compassion, actually, I love the city. Do you know what, Jonah? I love you. I love them despite their wickedness and brutality and violence, and I love you despite your nationalistic arrogance and pride. Well, so much for what sulking looks like and leads to. I think our question this afternoon has got to be why? Why? What is the root of this kind of sulking? So here's the fourth idea, a bit bigger than the others. The root of this, and I want you to listen carefully to this, is that Jonah's sulking, our sulking, always reveals a conflicted heart. How we behave is very important. But actually, in the end, our behavior is always a matter of what is going on inside, in our hearts. What we do and say always reveals where our heart is really at. Gritted teeth, wallowing, up and down like a yo-yo. All of this is a sign of a heart that is conflicted. And I, I think if we can understand this, I think we'll understand ourselves a lot better. And I think we'll be able to get a much better grip on what God is doing in our lives every day. The clue here, I think, is in the depth of his disappointment. On the surface, his behavior and his language looks just narrow-minded bigotry. There's, there's not, this is not just a little bit racist. He hates the Assyrians. He hates the Ninevites. He wants God to nuke them. But there's more to it than that, I think. Because when you, when you look at his language later on in verse 3, what he says to God is very profound. Now, O Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. I, I think that's a little bit more than just mild racism and bigotry. Somehow, he has lost his reason to live because of what's happened. His life is starting to unravel. His whole purpose has gone. I, I think Jonah here has lost something that is really very, very important to him. So our question then becomes, why, why, does the, why does Nineveh's response to God and their being saved in a way by God make him feel so utterly bereft? 
I, I think the reason has to be that the most important thing to Jonah at this point in his life is the safety and security of his own nation. And I think Jonah's response comes because if Nineveh is free, then his beloved Israel is in danger. And I think Jonah is saying, how can you, God, overlook their brutal brutality and put my beloved Israel in such peril? God, you have lost the plot. And because of you, I have nothing left to live for. I have lost my reason to get up in the morning. I knew this would happen. I don't understand why you would do this to me. So, in a sense, the root of Jonah's spectacular implosion here is, is really, at its heart, the fact that, at this point, he loves his country's reputation and safety more than he loves God. Does that make sense? In fact, what, what we could say is that, in Jonah's heart... There's a little rival God lurking deep down in his heart. And his sulking and instability is really because his heart is divided. This almighty strop that Jonah has here is because he has lost something that he cannot live without. There's an interesting little verse in the New Testament in the book of James which I think seems to sum Jonah up. James chapter 1 verse 8 says, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Very interesting. A double-minded man. Two things going on in conflict. And as a result of that, he's unstable, unsteady. Jonah here is trying to serve two different gods. He's trying to serve the true and living God and a little rival God of nationalistic pride. And there's a competition going on in his heart between the true God and the little rival God, and that's why he's sulking. Let me try and highlight this for us before we draw to a close. Many people in our modern culture claim that they're not religious. I talk to people all the time who say, I'm not a religious person. I'm not a religious person. But actually, deep down, we're all very religious. We may not go to church or talk in religious language, but let me ask some questions this way. What, what would be, for you, your theoretical heaven, in inverted commas? What do you long for that would make your life complete? What do you yearn for and aspire to that would mean that you are safe, secure, and significant? Let's say for a moment that that would be heaven to you. The other side of the coin then is, on the other hand, what would be your imaginary hell, in inverted commas? What would be your worst nightmare? What is there in your life that you couldn't live without? that would mean if it wasn't there that your life had lost its meaning and you might say take my life it's better for me to die than to live 
when you think in those kind of terms, in the end, your saviour, with a little s, in inverted commas, is going to be the thing that delivers for you your heaven and saves you from your hell. Your functional saviour is going to be the thing that gives you what you aspire to and saves you from what you fear. For Jonah, the worst outcome here, his hell, is for his nation, Israel, to be flattened and his identity is bound up in the fortunes of his nation. Heaven for him was Israel being safe and secure and preeminent, glorious. That would have been his heaven. Here's the thing. We always tend to worship the things that deliver us from our worst fears and give us what we think we need to be really happy. And whether we are religious or not, we all worship someone or something as our functional saviour. The really significant thing, I think, in this passage is that in Jonah's case, what he's actually doing is he is using the true and living God to serve his rival God. He can't do that. In Jonah's case, when it comes to a showdown between the living God and his secret hidden God, he ends up viciously turning on the living God. If you could ask Jonah, what do you love? He would say, I'm a prophet. I'm a, I'm a professional preacher, for goodness sake. Of course I love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and strength. But when you start digging down into his heart, what he says he loves is very different to where his real heart affection is. And when it comes to a competition between the two, the living God gets it in the neck. And he has the boldness to look God in the face, the only one who could satisfy and fill his life, and say, God, I've had enough. My rival God's gone. I just want to die. He comes to the God who gives life. Yes, even the God who has sensationally saved his life. And yet he wants to die. That is the sign of a conflicted heart, is it not? Listen, if you're obeying God through gritted teeth, if you are continually justifying your feelings of being let down, if you find your heart is up and down like a yo-yo, maybe, maybe, it's because like Jonah, you've been using the true God to serve your rival gods. You don't want God for himself. He's just there to give you what you really think you need to be happy. And the real root of your trouble then is not that life is unfair, but that rival mini-gods are still reigning in the secret places of your heart. Some of us all of us have been looking in all the wrong places. Attention-seeking behaviours. The thankless treadmill of being a workaholic. Addictive behaviours. 
that are an attempt to drown out the gnawing emptiness we feel. And all the while, secretly sulking. Why? Because our hearts are divided and conflicted. We try to fix the behaviours, but it never seems to work because we haven't yet understood that the secret rival gods in our hearts are the things that need to be dealt with. We're nearly done. Now, perhaps you're listening to this and thinking, oh man, this is scary. Um, I can see a little of what you mean, Ian. Sometimes my motives are a little bit mixed up. And, but how, how on earth can I live? Do, do I have to love God perfectly for him to be pleased with me? Because it seems like I can't get near to a God who is this good. Is that a scary thought to you? Let me encourage you that this is the whole point of the story. God hasn't gone anywhere, has he? He's still here. Jonah is sulking, but God is still here. You can buy t-shirts with that on. Are you still here? It's meant to be an insult when you tell someone to get lost and they're still here. Are you still here? Jonah could have been wearing that t-shirt as he sits under his shade outside the city. God, are you still here? And you know, the answer would be yes. I am right here. Despite your sulking, Jonah, I'm right here. The issue is not that Jonah is right. The issue is that God loves him and chases him and teaches him and refines him. The reason that God accepts us is not rooted inside of us. It's rooted inside of him. Can I say that again? The reason that God accepts us is not rooted in us. It is rooted in him. If you're looking for reasons for God to accept you in you, in the end, you'll be disappointed. But when you look away from you to him, and you see that he loves you because that's what he's like, that is very liberating. God sent his son, Jesus, to live the life that we can't live, that Jonah didn't live. And he sent him to die the death that we deserve because of our sins. And the reason that God accepts us completely into his love is because of Jesus. He is the hero in the story. The amazing thing, you know, is that even when we come to faith for the first time, we come with mixed motives. Maybe you came to Jesus because you wanted to have a sense of belonging. Maybe you came to Jesus because it dealt with your feelings of unworthiness, or it could be any number of reasons. God is big enough to handle our mixed motives. But when we do come to him, he is always loving us as we are, but always seeking to cut through our mixed motives to bring us closer to him. Jonah is a work in progress. God doesn't abandon him or forsake him, but he works on him and in him. And we'll look at it next time and see that God's love is rugged and strong. It's not a love that just wraps us up in cotton wool. 
He will pursue you and chase you and sometimes you will smart in pain because of the things God is doing. Not to hate you, but to liberate you. To wrestle the rival gods and set you free. In the end, the antidote to Jonah's sulking is God's persistent chasing grace. And that is the answer to your sulking and my sulking too. If you're a sulker, if you're sulking today, repent of it. Just stop it now. Stop it right now. Stop sulking. And turn to the living God who is big enough to handle you. Will you let his grace dig deeply into your heart? Instead of running from him, will you run to him? Instead of hiding from him, will you hide in him? And instead of sulking over the wrong things, will you allow him to soothe you and reassure you so that you can truly find your hope and security in him? Amen.